0: As we come to the scripture, let me ask you please to pray with me, Father in heaven. Again, we marvel at the fact that we have in our fingers and right before our eyes uh, the very word of God, how how utterly unthinkable that is. That the God of all that is and creator of all that is uh, has written to us, uh, has so worked in the lives of certain human beings to uh, provide for us, Exactly that which you want us to know about you and about us and about life. And uh, here we have it. And so I pray that we uh, worship you by taking this up uh, and uh, showing that you are worthy uh, of our thinking. You are worthy to order our thoughts. And so I pray that you would do that, that we would yield our minds to you, our very hearts to you, that we might believe all that you say and that we might love what you love and embrace what you embrace and and live in such a way that is pleasing to you this I pray in Jesus name Amen. Turn please to 1st Timothy 1st Timothy And chapter 1, please, I want to read verses 18 through 20, read them again, this is I think our third week on this passage, and I think we'll move on after this, but uh, 1 Timothy 1, uh, verse 18, uh, please, hear the word of God. Paul the Apostle writing to his son in the faith, Timothy, who's the pastor of this church in Ephesus, verse 18. This uh, charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, In my prayer, I made mention of the fact that we're worshiping and we worship God, not only by singing praise and giving thanks to Him, not only praying, but also by listening to Him. And in this act of worship, of listening, what we're really saying is, God, that You're worthy of our love, that we're to love You with all of our hearts, soul, mind, and strength. Everything in us is to turn to You and love You, and so... As an expression of love to God, we listen. As an expression of love to Him, we say, You're worthy, you're worth. That's this word, worship, comes from an old English expression, worth-ship, you're worth it, as we would say it. That God is worth our minds. To yield our minds to Him... To say, we desire to think as you think, to know as you reveal yourself and life to us. So, So we yield ourselves to you. So when we come to this moment in worship, we're worshiping by listening, we're worshiping by believing that which is true. And so here we come. And so Paul writes to this young man, this young pastor, Timothy... That which is the very word of God. Now It's amazing to us. We don't know really how quite to explain how it is that a human being, a man like Paul and others who wrote the scripture from Genesis to Revelation, actually did that. But we trust God in the midst of that, because he says that this is his very word, that this word is God-breathed. Peter described it like this. He said, the prophets of old spoke and wrote as those carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so we trust that as Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, as an apostle, as one called by God, chosen by God, gifted by God, to write Scripture, really, that even in writing this, Paul wasn't in a trance in some sense and, and sort of just hearing in one ear and it going right down his arm into his pen. And then I guess he would hear with his left hand and get tired and write with his left hand. I don't know. It wasn't that at all. It was, this was flowing from Paul's life. All this made sense to him. And, and yet God was at work in him in such a way that he would write what would stand the test of time. And be of benefit, because it's the very word of God, to Christians throughout the generations. So here we have it. So again, uh, you may pick up as I pray from time to time concerning the scripture, that we mustn't ever lose the, the, the amazement of what we have here as God writing to us. I don't know about you, but I, I have a few, in filed away somewhere, special letters from people. Uh, that have been special to me and have said certain things that I, so I want to keep that and, and, and I keep it in a special place so I won't lose it from time to time I refer back to it just because it makes me feel good uh, but, but, but this is from God you see and so it's just fascinating and that's even a cheap word isn't it captivating to have this uh, very word of God so as we come to it it's with a sense of worship a sense of rever- reverence a sense of yielding a sense of Yes, God, speak. Right? And so Paul writes to Timothy. And he's writing to Timothy about warfare, really, by the time we get to this section in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He's writing really about this warfare. He says says to Timothy, you're in a fight. It's a good fight. It's a good fight in the sense it's a moral fight. That is to say, it's right to do. This is right to fight this fight. This is a good fight, a just fight to fight. And it's good in the sense it has great value. It has eternal value. In fact, as we see, it has such value that if it's won, all is won. If lost, all is lost. So it's that kind of good fight. It says, fight the good fight. And here's how you fight the good fight. Timothy, you must hold to faith. You must hold that which is true. You must hold this faith in Christ and a good conscience. That is, you must believe that which is true and you must have a good conscience, meaning you must approve that which is true, that which is right, that is good, and approve it in such a way that you're really living it out. And so, Timothy, what you need to do in the midst of this fight in order to maintain, in order to win, if you will, you need to trust and obey must be your life trust and obey because you see if you lose or reject as he puts it a good conscience like some have done then your faith will become shipwrecked that is to say if you stop believing and approving that which is true most especially if you stop approving that which is true stop living it out what you'll find is your faith will ultimately be shipwrecked meaning that you'll live in this sinful state and you'll rationalize it in such a way that you will also then reject the truth. And he says, some have done that. And he lists to Hymenaeus and Alexander. He says, their, their faith is now shipwrecked. It won't take them where it needs to go. It, it's been wrecked. It won't get them where they need to be. In terms of relationship with God. And so he says, Don't do that. And so Paul says, Here's what I've had to do, I've had to give them over to Satan, if you will, to teach them not to not to blaspheme. Now it's that expression that we've taken up in this week last week and in some sense this week, that expression that Paul has given them over over to Satan to teach them, not really to to blaspheme. Uh, blaspheme to slander God they've spoken that which is not true about God now the question for us about them really is how they get there what does that really mean uh, did, did it mean that well they started out believing all the right stuff and, and then they caught, caught up into some sort of sin and then they rejected that which is true and began to teach that which was false and, and, and so now they've come to that situation we, we want to know were they really believers and then did they Lose faith? We want to ask, were they really saved at one point from the wrath of God? Were they really born again, as the scripture says? And and, and then reach a point where they rejected all of that, and now Paul gives them over to Satan? And and, and that sounds so drastic, doesn't it? To be given over to Satan? Uh, And Paul says, I want them to learn not to slander, not to blaspheme. And then we realize that that appears as if Paul's implying there's going to be some pain involved in this. Because we don't know exactly how they would be taught that lesson. We don't even know if they'll learn that lesson. There's nothing here where Paul says, I know that they're going to learn it, and thus they'll be restored. He doesn't say anything about that. He says, I'm just giving them over to Satan, that they'll learn not to blaspheme. We don't know what happened to these people. We don't don't know how all this worked out. We don't know what even Paul had in his mind in terms of what his expectation was at that point in time. Um, So we wonder about all that. As I said, it appears as if there, there, there must be some suffering involved physically, spiritually, because if Satan is going to be the teacher... He's the destroyer. And so you say, all right, I don't think I'd sign up for his class, right? I think I'd take another instructor. But Paul is saying, I'm taking you out of this sphere where God protects and, and God graciously disciplines and teachers and now I'm going to put you out in this sphere, out of the church I'm going to put you over here where Satan is the teacher now clearly the last thing in Satan's mind would be to teach them not to blaspheme, Satan's after us blaspheming, but Paul knows that God is sovereign and that God can use even the evil one to teach good lessons if you will ultimately Paul knew that in his own personal life he said he had a messenger from Satan a thorn in the flesh that ended up teaching him a great lesson and so forth and so it can happen and so we don't know how all that's going to take place there's much here that's uncertain but we do realize that Paul is saying that he as an apostle in the church is the church of Jesus Christ had that kind of power and that kind of authority because Jesus said to the church to Peter first and then to the church that he gave to the church the keys of the kingdom of heaven so that. Whatever the church would bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Whatever is loosed on earth is loosed in heaven. And that is forgiveness language, really, binding and loosing. Binding in sin, loosing from it. To loose from sin is to be free from its penalty, free from its power. And so that, that sense of, so So Jesus had said that the church, because the church has been given the gospel, that the church has that kind of power, that kind of authority. When the church is being the church, now when the church isn't being the church, we're making stuff up, and we're going beyond that which we've been given, then we have difficulties. But when the church is being the church, you see, we have that kind of power, that kind of authority. So do you understand that when Paul was saying, I'm going to give you over to Satan, I'm going to put you out of the church, that that was far more drastic than any civil discipline that a person could ever receive. Because, you see, a civil government, a civil judiciary, can only affect, really, our life now. But the church, you see, through this discipline and putting someone out of the church, can affect their souls for all eternity. So you see the difference there see how much more significant this is now in our culture of course it's topsy-turvy nobody pays much attention to church stuff what the church does pays a great deal of attention to civil and civic kinds of things but really in the scheme of things and how God has ordained institutions and so forth the church has that kind of devastating power I just mention that. Meditate on that for the rest of your life. Think about that. Now, that's what's happened here. And so, we're captivated by that. So, last week we talked some about this sense of giving over to Satan and what that means. But what I want to talk about this Sunday, as I mentioned last week in prep, was to simply say to ask the question: What did? What did? Timothy get from all of this? Don't you wonder, if he wondered, well, what about me? I mean, if, if this happened to them, what about me? If this happened to them, what, what, what about my situation? As, as I read this, I have to say that as I read this passage, I, I think, well, boy, if this happened to Hymenaeus and Alexander, well, what about me? Because, you see, when I think about Hymenaeus and Alexander, when I picture them in my mind, they look like Hitler, right? I mean, they just look bad people. Oh, they're being given over to Satan. All this bad stuff, right? But you know what? I bet they were really nice guys. I bet they fit in really well in the church in Ephesus. I bet everybody liked them. In fact, sometimes I wonder if they weren't more likable than Timothy himself. They were wolves in sheep's clothing. They were very convinced that what they were saying was really true. And so you, you get the sense that they could well have been very likable men. Somehow they were able to live in the context of a church where Timothy, who was Paul's son in the faith, was the pastor and survive and have a following in the midst of all of that. So, so they, they, they must have had something going on that was attractive, that attracted people to them. And yet this very drastic thing, and the very drastic measure of putting them out of the church, of course, is because the church is a pillar and support of truth. That we haven't truth and we haven't anything. Because you see, everything really boils down to whether or not we really have faith in Jesus. Not Jesus as we define him, but Jesus as he really is. You remember, I mentioned this last Sunday, you remember there was an occasion that Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And they give a long list. All wrong. And then Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And how did Jesus then respond to him? He says, Peter, you've responded rightly, but you only know this because it was revealed to you by my Father who's in heaven. So Jesus, in a sense, is saying, I am who my Father says I am. He's the definer of me, and he's right about me. It isn't who you think I am. And so for, gen- for centuries, human beings have been on a search for this historical Jesus. Who is he really? And so we've come up with all kinds of things about him. But the bottom line is, Jesus is who he is. And who he is is who the Father says he is, and the Father has said he's his son, the, 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 the Christ The very Messiah, the one who's come to save his people from their sins. That's who he is. And that's the Jesus we must believe in. And so you see, if ever we get that wrong, who Jesus is, then we're in great trouble and we have absolutely nothing. We must get that right. And so you see, when there are people in the midst of the church who are speaking that which is essentially untrue, about jesus then to protect the church they must be put out now i trust that paul went through that which jesus said one should go through when one is in sin i'm sure though he doesn't say it here, that he or others had gone to hymenaeus and, and alexander and talked to them about their their blasphemy but he didn't just say, well, I heard they've been blaspheming. Boop, put them out. But but, but, but rather, someone went to them. I mean, that was the way of Jesus. That's the way he had been taught. That's the way the church had been taught. And, and, and if they rejected that, which they appeared to have, then others would have gone as well. And then finally now, in this situation, the church. And so, so we don't know the stage of the church in Ephesus when Timothy's pastor. Uh, you get the sense they have yet to have elders and so forth. Timothy's to appoint them and, and, and have them and so forth. So whether they had some and not many or whatever... But, but but we don't know. It's fairly infant, it seems. So Paul takes that authority, and he sends them out. Because, you see, we can't, uh, as an old professor of mine once says, said play shenanigans with that which is true. And so he put them out for the sake of the church. And for their own sake, it seems as well, perhaps, to learn some sort of lesson. But, but, but you see, there's still this nagging thing in us, at least in me. Can I have any assurance that I won't end up like them, like Hymenaeus and Alexander? And I think the answer to that question uh, is is yes. It falls, this answer to that question, under uh, a category in theology called the perseverance of the saints. And uh, that, that expression perseverance of the saints comes out of a particular theological tradition but it's been grabbed a hold of by many uh, some uh, simply use the expression the security of the believer or another expression that you perhaps have grown up with is once saved, always saved now let me tell you why I like the expression the perseverance of the saints better than the security of the believer and one, or once saved Always saved. Now it could very well be that we're meaning the same thing and all of that by these, and I trust. So if that's your tradition to use those other two, um, change. But uh, you, know, you can continue, I suppose. But, but but let me make an argument. Let me make a case for for a different expression. Uh, the danger, it seems to me, of this notion of security is is, is while I believe. The perseverance of the saints says that those who have been born again really are secure in God. And and, and there's a time that that security language is very helpful. There's a time when it isn't. Because the danger for us is that we can think ourselves secure and thus think, well, there's nothing then left for me. I I can just sort of glide through life. You you may get the impression, your expectation, once you're told that all is well and you're secure, is that the way to heaven is downhill. It's just sort of a, a coast... But yet, as we live our Christian lives, we know that it really isn't. And on the one hand, while I'm secure, it doesn't always seem that way because there's a great deal of struggle and effort that seems to be going on in, in the context of my life and the lives of others. And so I wonder, what and so security, yes, but danger. The notion one saved, always saved gives the impression that, well, you know, I sort of, as, as my southern friends might say, I got my religion, now all is well. And, and now I can just simply wait till heaven. And, and well... There's a sense in which one has to be once saved to be always saved. And and there's a sense in which that's quite true. The danger, that, again, is to think that it's in the past and not in the present and not in the future. It's in the past, but, it, but it's not where I live right now, today. The, the expression perseverance of the saints came through, one, because it's a biblical expression. Jesus said, He who perseveres or endures to the end will be saved. So it comes from that expression from Jesus. But this sense of perseverance, yes, it is a sense of security it is a sense of once, yes, always but I realize that in the course of my life it's, 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 a, it's a lifelong faith it's a lifelong engagement it's a lifelong obedience that I don't think is something that happened just in the past and in the future but, but the sense of in the midst of my life today yes, I'm clinging believing in Christ I'm persevering I always like the expression perseverance because when I think of a Christian I think of one who's sweating not sweating, worrying oh am I really saved but sweating, thinking I'm struggling to maintain faith I'm believing and I'm working in such a way that will show the glory of God this is important this is my whole life I'm I'm working through this you see it's so our expectation when we hear perseverance isn't that we just have our, our feet up or that we're simply on a coast mode in neutral, but there's there's something active in the context of our lives. And when this sense of perseverance of the saints, when we hear saints, we don't mean saints like some sort of special Christian who who has some sort of halo or something like that, but saints in the biblical sense that these are believers. All believers, according to scriptures, are saints. The word saint means holy ones. The word saint means uh, set-apart ones. First Greek word I ever learned, I learned from my mom. I don't know where she learned it, but I learned it from my mom. It's the Greek word hagios, which means holy. And she would often, with a smile on her face, refer to herself as an old hag. One who is holy, you see. hagios, And so, uh, and, and that's who we are, you see. We're holy ones set apart by God for his blessing to be conformed to the image of Christ, declared by God to be holy, to be righteous, because of the righteousness of Christ. And so, you see, our hope is in what we classify theologically, and this, this idea of the perseverance of the saints. Now, now, in what then is our hope as saints who are persevering? Westminster Confession of Faith. Let me just, I don't quote this or read this to you very often. Um, it's been a few years since I have done that, so let me do that. This is out of chapter 17 in the Confession. Now, the Westminster Confession of Faith, written um, 18th century and um, 17th century, uh, 1640s, uh, by about a hundred or so. Um, Divines, as they called them in those days, ministers, pastors, theologians in England, a few in Scotland. And uh, they got together for a number of years to write out, for a particular reason, for the government actually, to write out uh, truth, summarize biblical truth that was their goal it isn't infallible but it's helpful and chapters 17 and 18 quite frankly is the best stuff I think ever written few seven paragraphs in the two chapters very little to read but the best stuff that's been written on this whole idea of how we persevere and and here in the first paragraph of chapter 17 they lay out these old dead guys laid out um, our uh, real hope Says those whom God has accepted in His Son, and has effectually called and sanctified by His Spirit, can never completely or finally fall out of their state of grace. Rather, they shall definitely continue in that state to the end, and are eternally saved. Now, notice that the hope here is not in the people who are saved, but the hope is in God. Those whom God has called, accepted in his Son, is effectually called and sanctified by his Spirit. That is, God is at work in them. That's the confidence. Paragraph 2, they wrote this. Said, this endurance of the saints doesn't depend on their own free will, but on God's unchangeable decree of election, flowing from his voluntary, unchangeable love, It also depends on the effectiveness of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ, on the the indwelling spirit and the indwelling seed of God in his saints, and on the nature of the covenant of grace. All these establish the certainty and infallibility of their preservation. In other words, he's saying, listen, our hope is in God not in ourselves. Our hope is in God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The question is, can we trust Him? Is God trustworthy? When I think of of, of whether I'm going to end up like Hymenaeus and Alexander, I have to ask the question, is God really trustworthy? Has He really chosen me to be His? Has He really called me? Has He really died in Christ for me? Has His Spirit really come and given me new life? Is He really working in me even now? And if the answer to those questions is yes, then then, 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 then how can I not be saved? How can I not persevere to the end? It isn't upon me. For instance, when we think of the work of God the Father, Paul lays that out in uh, his letter to the... Church in Ephesus. Chapter 1, verse 3. We read this Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of, the, of His glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. That's a statement about God. This is his plan. And he says that he's chosen various ones to be his and to be adopted as his children. Now the question is can he do that? Did he do that? Can I trust him that he, that he did that? Uh, Romans and chapter 8 speaks to us. We read some of this already today in our reading. Romans 8 verse 29 speaks of God. For those whom he foreknew. and That isn't a foreknowing something about us. That means that he knew us ahead of time, knew us intimately, loved us. We could translate that for those whom he foreloved. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be, that is Jesus, the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. You'll notice there's no break in any of that language. He's saying, if he foreknew you, foreloved you, then he predestined you, he marked out your destiny. If he marked out your destiny, then he called you. If he called you, then he sanctified and will glorify you. All of that together. Uh, And so the question is, can we believe him? Do we believe he really did that and then Jesus his son Jesus came and said I I came not to serve but I'm sorry I came not to be served but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many now ransom means to pay that which is keeping you captive to pay so that once it's paid you can be set free the question is did he do that did Jesus really come and, and pay that so that I could be would be set free The Bible speaks of what Jesus did on the cross as a propitiation. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, what's the word propitiation mean? You should know this if you've been around here a while, okay? So just, I'll give, I'll give you two, 20 seconds. Think of what's propitiation mean. It's your test. You don't have to raise your hand, anything like that. But do you know what it means? It means to satisfy, or as some have put it, to exhaust... The wrath of God. And what that means is, once that's been settled, once that's been paid, then God has no case against you. So the question is, did Jesus really do that? Did he really satisfy the wrath of God on my behalf? If he did... Then he paid for sins, past, present, future. He he satisfied all of God's wrath against me. So no matter what takes place, no matter what has taken place, is taking place, will take place, God has no case against me. It's, It's all been washed. It comes before him, it's just gone. Is that true or not? And and once it's been true, how could it ever stop being true? Right? I mean, once all is propitiated, all is propitiated, all all the wrath is gone, then how can it start back up again at a later date? He said, well, wait a minute. This says it happened, it's done. When Jesus said it's finished, that's what he meant. So how can it ever restart? So how could I ever not be once I have been, you see? This propitiation this of God. Do I trust Jesus? And and do I trust Him even today? Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. I'm taking this just one verse. I could read a long passage. Don't have time. Hebrews 7, verse 25. Of Jesus, the author of Hebrews speaks, Consequently, He... That is, Jesus. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So you see, my security is based upon, grounded in Jesus being alive and being faithful to make intercession for me, meaning to defend me, always. So, if he succeeds in that, then I'm saved. If he doesn't, then I'm not. The question is, will he be faithful in that? Can I trust him to be faithful in that? Thus, when Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, he speaks of of Jesus uh, like this. He says, verse chapter 1, Verse 7, In Jesus, in Him... We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Why? Because this propitiation has been made. The forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insights. Verse 11. In Jesus, we've obtained an inheritance, have obtained it. It's there already. Having been predestined according to the purpose of Him, who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of His glory. Do we really believe that happened? Done, finished, but did. How could we be more secure? And we're also secure in the Holy Spirit because you see, it's the Holy Spirit who comes and gives us new life. He changes us. We didn't change ourselves. Remember when Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus, he spoke of something called this new birth, this being born from above, born from God. And you realize that the birth E has nothing to do with his or her conception basic Google bio, uh, don't Google anything when it comes to these sorts of things you want to know what's going to come up but, but you get my point, you, you know that's true you and I are here today not because we planned on it we're alive because of something that took place in our parents and when we were born we were going, boy that was the best idea I ever had right now it wasn't even their idea sometimes <laughs> but here we are right we find ourselves alive and that's true in our spiritual lives as well that's why Jesus uses this image of being born again we find ourselves alive it was a work of the Holy Spirit you can't see it but it happened and we know it happened because of the effects of it because we find ourselves alive we find ourselves repenting and believing that's this deal there. you see that's this work of the Holy Spirit he did it not us it isn't our work but his so we can trust that it's a good work if it was my work and my work alone I couldn't trust it for a minute if I jumped in, I could jump out. But if I was brought in, if I was made to come in, if someone grabbed me over here and put me in here, oh, and this one who put me in here now defends me and intercedes for me, then, then I can trust and I can be safe. And I can, yes, all right. That's why, again, Paul, when he writes this church in Ephesus, puts concerning the Holy Spirit, it says, in Him, in Jesus You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed believed in Him, were sealed with a promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glorious grace. The Holy Spirit is referred to as a guarantee. In some versions, it would have this, a deposit guaranteeing. It's good translation, good understanding because this word guarantee is a word that we would use for earnest money in a contract or a down payment, what does that mean? it means I'm going to give you a bit of it in good faith and I'm going to give you a bit of it and this bit that I give you convinces you that I'm good for the rest and so the Holy Spirit is a down payment to us, if we have the Spirit of God and we do if we've been born again because He's worked that in us if we have the Spirit of God, then you see, we have the very down payment of God. We have the earnest money of God. And he's saying, I've given you my Spirit, so I'm good for the rest. Trust me. A day will come when you'll see all this come to fruition. So you have this. So, the, so, so the, 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 those who wrote this Westminster Confession of Faith, those who wrote the Bible, were saying, yes, we have good hope that we won't end up like Hymenaeus and Alexander because God is with us. But you see, in order for him to, to, to preserve us, in order for us to persevere, we must remain in faith. Right? I mean, if we're justified by faith, this faith must really, in the course of our lives, continue. We must continue in this faith. So the question is, how do we know that's going to happen? Well, will God preserve our faith? Notice First Peter in chapter 1. Peter writes this, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercies, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable and defiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power, that is you, you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. saying, listen, I'm going to guard you. I'm going to guard this inheritance for you. And I'm going to guard it by faith. Well, if he's going to guard it by faith, he's going to have to guard our faith. We're going to have to maintain this faith. This faith is going to have to be sustained. And so even when I think of my own faith, I think of God helping me. God sustaining my faith. We know first and foremost that our faith is a gift from God. It comes because of this work of the spirit in us Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 for by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it that is this faith and this grace all of it together it is the gift of God not a result of work so that no one can boast this is the very gift of God to us and then in Philippians in chapter 1 verse 29 we read this for it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but suffer for his sake in other words it's been granted or grace or gifted, given to us that we should believe. That's a very gift of God. But so he gives us this gift of faith, but then God also works to sustain it. You remember the dear father, whose son was so demonized that he came to Jesus and he said, Please help my son. And Jesus said, I will. If you believe it, and, and the man says, I do believe but help my unbelief. What a silly thing to ask Jesus, unless he could do that. And so Jesus did help his unbelief. Have you ever thought, what was the difference between Judas and Peter on the night that Jesus was betrayed when Satan came at both of them? You remember what happened. Scripture says that Satan entered Judas and he went out and betrayed Jesus. But you remember what Jesus said to Peter. He said, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you so that your faith would not fail. In other words, he said to Peter, I will sustain your faith in me, not Judas's." Why? Complicated answer. In part, we know that Judas from the very beginning, as Jesus would said, was the son of perdition. He was not one, Who was a sheep, he was not one of the elect of God, whereas Peter was. And thus he sustained Peter's faith. He sustained, you see, our faith. So that we will persevere to the end. Now the question is, what about Hymenaeus and Alexander? What was their deal? Why didn't God do that to them? And of course the answer is, I don't know. Because I don't know what's going to happen to them. Now the truth is, if given over to Satan teaches them not to blaspheme and they repent of their sin and they believe the truth and are restored into the life of the church, then you see, we can say, oh look how faithful God is. They, they, they were believers. and But what about those and quite frankly, we all know them who once professed faith in Jesus, and now we see that they're no longer walking with Him. If you're like me, you have a list of people. I have a list, for instance, of theologians that I read 25 years ago that now I don't read now, or when I do, it's with a very critical eye because I said, oh my, what happened? They seem to have it so right here, and now they seem to have lost it all. What about them? What about those that, we know at one point in time were walking with Christ, and now simply aren't it, and, we, and we see it in, in their lives perhaps they don't attend church anymore or just on the periphery or come to a Bible study every once in a while when at one time they were very faithful maybe, maybe they send in a prayer request from time to time but, but it's now how they speak about Christ how they speak about the church or perhaps how they don't speak about Christ and they don't speak about the church it doesn't seem to be impacting their lives at all and, and, and yet we had a sense at one point in time and we don't really know about them to be really honest with you We can't give them any assurance because we don't see any faith, we don't see any life in them from Christ. Yet they did make a profession, but but what is true of them now? And, and, And we simply don't know. There simply isn't any assurance. And so if that's true of you, then we simply don't know. Now, for those that, that, that simply repudiate the church and so forth, they, they could be like those ones that John speaks of in 1 John in chapter 2. And he writes in the church there, John does, and he says, Listen, probably the church in Ephesus as well, but listen, and says, that They were with us, they were part of us, but, but they left us. And so that just shows they really weren't part of us. But, but we know this other group of people. And Jesus spoke of a group of people in his parable of the sower. He says, you know, there's, there's some, the seed goes out and it falls on rocky soil. Another seed goes out and it falls on thorny soil. When it falls on rocky soil, it doesn't get a really good, good root to it. And so it, it might spring up and it dies out because the sun comes and burns out. And thorny soil it comes and the thorns grow and all the weeds and it chokes it out. And Jesus says, let me tell you, when the seed comes out, this could happen. But the seed goes down and it comes up with joy. A person believes that it seems, comes up with joy, but, but then difficulties come because of they've made this profession of faith, and they fall away. And you get the sense it never really took root. It never really had root, Jesus' point. And, and then there's other, so among thorny uh, places with weeds and so forth, and it chokes it out. And he said, well, you know, the, the deceitfulness of riches and the worries of the world come in, and so people hear it, and they may go, yes, and then things pile on, and they they no longer cling to that which is true of Christ. and We say, yes, okay, I get it. Ah. So what do we do? Well, we don't disparage God and say He can't save. We say, in fact, God can save. So we go to them and we say, believe. Hey, look at this. Look at what is true about Christ. And so we continue to warn them because, you see, God uses these various warnings to draw people to Himself. Warnings in Scripture that tell us you must believe or those warnings reveal what's in the heart. Someone whose heart is really saved will hear that warning and return. someone who hears that warning and isn't will continue to drift away. I noticed always when I was teaching in the university that when I would um, warn my students, the A and B students always took it to heart. The failing students rarely did. <laughs> I would say, if you don't really study hard for this test, you're going to fail. And I could just see those A students going, oh man... You know, and, and they wouldn't have to study at all, but they would. The failing students are going, eh, yeah, I does not really mean that. Right? It reveals what's in the heart. And so these warnings come to us. And so here's the funny conclusion to all of this. We know that our hope is in God and what He has done and is doing and will do, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's our hope. But we can have no assurance unless we continue to believe it that's our assurance and he gives us means you see in order to help us in our faith he gives us means, he says I want you to continue to come under the word and to hear it if you don't you're in trouble if you do your faith will be strengthened God uses means he says you must pray you see you must pray, hear this word and pray God help me and I'll hear your prayers and through that means your faith will be sustained you must come and worship you must be in fellowship so that you can live life together and be corrected by one another and correct one another in the course of your living that's a means you see that God keeps us in the faith and he gives to us his sacraments as well and he says here I, I want you to come and this will help you this will help to sustain your faith I must say, I take that prayer of that father who came to Jesus with this terrorized son, son terrorized by Satan. And I take it and he prayed, I believe but help my unbelief. There are times when I pray that, but most often I tweak that like this. I believe sustain my belief I believe sustain it guard it God, keep it keep this faith when I pray that I I believe the Holy Spirit takes me back to the scripture and says read about me so you can trust because faith comes by hearing this word of Christ and the Spirit takes me to my knees and says pray that God will help you and he will when I When I pray, sustain my faith, he brings me into contact with other believers who are living this out and I see their life. Or I can tell them about my difficulties and my struggles and they they helped me. The Holy Spirit gives gifts that encourage and help, you see. Or my life is corrected just by watching the life of someone else. I have some people, I come into contact with them and and all of a sudden I sit up straighter. You know what I mean? It's just like, whoa, I can't be around them and be so spiritually slothful. It's just a help to me when I'm around them and all of that and the spirit brings me to this table as well because you see sacraments as we call them ordinances some other traditions whatever you want to use is fine with me but sacraments that which is common but made sacred in the sense of being set apart by God to say I want to show you something with this that's really special and so he sets apart bread and juice as we do it and and says "I, I, I want to give you this sacrament, which is a sign and a seal of my promise. The sign and seal of the covenant of grace. A sign, meaning it's pointing to something. What it's pointing to is Christ and His death for you. It says, I want you to see that. And it's also a seal, meaning this is my stamp on this. It says, this is really true. Believe it. And so he gives us a couple of these. Baptism. And the Lord's Supper, communion. And and so he says, I want to use these in your life so that every time you see them, every time you participate in this, you're going to think of me. And not only that, I'm going to be present in a particular way with you to help you. As I'm present when you're reading the scripture, I'm present when you're praying, I'm present when you're worshiping. I'm going to be present here in a way that will help your faith. And so here we are. And we remember that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread after giving thanks. He broke it. He gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body given for you. You see, this is a sign and a seal of God's covenant of grace. We see this. We say, oh yes, Jesus gave his body that I might be saved. And God is saying this, Bill isn't saying this? You are not saying this. God is saying this in the midst of just this he's saying, look at this. I gave my son, believe this. This is really true. The same night, Jesus took the cup. and again, after giving thanks, he gave this to his disciples and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And the Lord says, believe, you see. This is from me. My son's blood was shed for you. Believe it. That's what keeps you and so he invites us, calls us to this table and he says as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup we declare the Lord's death until he comes that is, it's always before us and so we're reminded and we meet with him and we say yes that's really true and so we come to this table and we take a piece of bread we dip in the cup and we eat it and there's a sense in which we say yes I believe please God sustain me I believe God I'm depending upon you to keep me God, God, you're the one who chose me. You're the one who called me. You're the one who changed me. You're the one who enabled me. You're the one who saves me. I trust you. And when we're like that, then we're way, way, way far away from Hymenaeus and Alexander. We're in the very heart of God. That's security. That's always that enables us to persevere. Let's pray, Father. Pray for me, for us. That you would set apart this bread, this juice in such a way. that we'll know that this is your way of communicating to us. Your way of saying what Christ has done to us. And that in this, this moment, this time, That you will fortify, strengthen, sustain our faith. That we might live in the certain hope of eternal life. On this we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.